Happy Easter to everyone here in the main auditorium and to everyone over in the north auditorium. It's fun to be together here today as we're one church in two different locations here in this room and then also in the north auditorium all gathering together for our Easter services. My name's Adrian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Carney Free and it's, it's great to be with you today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, is it not? What a joy. What a joy it is. You know, there's a lot going on in the church right now. I want to bring just a couple quick items to your attention, Bob, before we enter into this morning's message. Next Sunday, we'll start a new message series that we're titling, One is Greater Than Seven. And it's looking at the seven normal temptations, the most common struggles that we all experience on a day-in and day-out basis, and how God would provide a remedy for those struggles. Things like greed, and lust, and anger, and envy, and the various struggles that we all experience, and again, how God would increasingly provide a remedy for those struggles as we trust in Him. And so we'd invite you to come join us for that series starting next Sunday, and um, it should be a good one as we uh, look at something that's very, very practical for all of us. Also next Sunday, immediately after the second service, that is the 11 o'clock service, we'll have a lunch on us, and that gathers out in uh, the cafe area, just north of us right now, and over in the cafe we'll have a full lunch and opportunity for you to meet some of our pastors and ministry staff and learn about some of the things that are happening here at Carnegie Free. If you're newer here to the church today or over the past few months, we'd love for you to come join us for that lunch. That's uh, on us, of course, and you can let us know that you're planning on attending just by filling out this little communication card or by calling the church sometime this week and letting us know that you'll be coming. Uh, This communication card is an easy way for you to introduce yourself to us and to let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know if there's any questions you have about our church, and you can bring that out to the information table or to the communication boxes through these doors right after service. And we'll be sure to pray for you this week and get back with you with any questions that you might have. You know, before we get into this morning's Easter message, we do have one piece of church family news that I need to share with you. And it's that our, our dear friend, uh, Darina Danube, passed away last night. And uh, many of you know Darina because she was uh, a superb children's ministries director here at Carnegie Free for many years. And... Uh, was a wonderful minister, and uh, she will be deeply missed. And so I'd ask for your prayer for Tim, uh, her husband, and of course for their daughters, Hannah and Hope, as they grieve, and uh, for the extended family as well, ask for your prayer for them. And uh, we're very grateful for Darina. She made a huge impact in this church, and uh, service details will be forthcoming in the coming days. But we give Uh, Thanks to God today, even as we grieve her passing, because we do have hope as we celebrate here on Resurrection Sunday that Darina continues to live. And uh, so we rejoice in that even today as we grieve. But I would like to take a moment and pray for Tim and Hannah and Hope, and then we'll enter into this morning's message. Would you join me? Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. God, we've brought in so many different hurts and hang-ups and pains, and we all have various circumstances that we're struggling through, and we ask, God, that you would meet us right there. You are present in this room. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we believe you're present in this room. So would you work in us, God? Would you grant us a renewed hope today as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord? We do pray for the Danube family, that you would comfort them, 
in this time of great grief. We thank you, Lord, for the example Darina has been to me and to so many of suffering well, of living life in the midst of pain with great hope. And uh, we pray your hand of blessing on Tim and Hannah and Hope and Darina's mother and the extended family. We're grateful for each of them and ask your care for them today. Now, Father, would you direct our hearts toward Christ that we might understand more the resurrection and what it means for us today. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I love to tell the story. I love to tell this story. As the old poem goes, it will be my theme and glory. I love to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You've heard this story before, no doubt. And I've shared this story before, no doubt, many times. And this is a familiar story to many of us. And I think my prayer for you all today, my prayer for myself today, is that the familiarity of this story would not overwhelm the power of this story that is still for us today in 2016 and is able to transform the trajectory of our lives. I really believe that, and I hope you do as well. I've been praying for you this week that as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and we look at these words where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, that perhaps out of these words and out of the historic moment of this event that we celebrate today, we would find that God is great enough to meet us in the depths of our struggles, whatever they might be today. Whatever your struggle, whatever your circumstance, God's love, God's grace, God's hope is deeper still. You know, every year about this time, end of March and the beginning of April, you start to see news magazines and news stories, TV programs about Jesus. You don't really see them on the news the rest of the year, but just before Easter, you'll see some headlines in uh, Time Magazine or different online periodicals or um, on the television, different stories about uh, Jesus and how we can reinterpret the resurrection for today. Have you seen those? Uh, How does Jesus provide new meaning for us today in 2016? Or sometimes the question goes, how do we reinterpret the resurrection for our new, much more enlightened age? You've read those stories. You've certainly seen those headlines. I think what's interesting about those is that there's a certain assumption behind each of those headlines that still today, almost 2,000 years later, the resurrection of Christ begs for some kind of response from us. As Jake noted so well, if he actually rose from the grave, if he actually defeated the grave, then it demands some kind of response from us. The response in those news stories and in those TV programs frequently goes something like this. He was a caring social activist who wandered the countryside doing good deeds and random acts of kindness to people as he saw them. But unfortunately, he tangled with the authorities, and in his mid-30s, his life was tragically cut short, and that was really the end of the story. Something happened thereafter, we're not sure exactly what, 
but we can draw some kind of hope, some kind of inspiration from his sacrificial love. And so we'll do that, even though we know it's not true, it was a great myth, and we can gain something from this story. That's one common response today to the news of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Now the church, of course, across the centuries, be it Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, has always had a different response. It's that, yes, Jesus was a caring social activist, and he did tangle with the authorities, but he tangled with the authorities because he claimed to be none other than the Son of God. And he said that he would die and he would rise from the grave, and he would break down dividing walls between people, and that he was one who came to give life. And the story goes that he was crucified by a well-known governor named Pontius Pilate, and he was placed into a well-known tomb owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he died, and he was crucified before people. And he said that he was dying for the sins of humanity, and then he seemed inexplicably to rise from the grave on the third day and appear to over 500 witnesses, Jews and Greeks and Romans and believers and skeptics and men and women in many different ways and many different circumstances. And as, inexplic as, as inexplicable as it sounds, he actually rose from the grave in time and in space. And because he lives, so also we can face tomorrow. That's the response of the church across the ages. Which one is it? Is it merely a nice story that can provide inspiration that wasn't true, but it was a nice myth that can provide inspiration for us today? Or was it something more? Is he just who he said he was, the Son of God who came to conquer the grave and to grant us hope? Again, it strikes me that People are still responding today to the resurrection of Christ that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And as we read some of the resurrection story this morning from John chapter 20, we'll see a few possible responses that we can take to Jesus even this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 20, and we'll look at a couple different scenes in the resurrection narrative. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see these verses on the screen as I go. But just to set the stage, you have Mary Magdalene and other ladies who have gone to the tomb in order to uh, visit Jesus once he was buried in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the custom of the day in the Hebrew culture was that you would go and you'd care for that loved one who died by bringing spices to the tomb and perfumes and anointing the tomb. And so that's what they're doing. They're going to the tomb to do that. And, and they're shocked, of course, because they get there and they see the stone has been rolled away. And they look into the tomb, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so they run back, and they tell the disciples that someone has stole the body. We don't know where they put him. And then the next thing we see is Mary Magdalene going back to the tomb where she is grieving the loss of her Savior. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What a beautiful scene. Imagine you're Mary in this moment, and you realize you're now looking at the resurrected Lord, and he's just said to you, Mary. She runs over and she embraces him, and then her next response is then to go run and tell the disciples, well, what has just happened? And she thinks that they will respond with, yay, the good news. He actually did what he said he would do, but how did they respond? If you know your Bible, you know they said, you crazy woman. People don't rise from the grave. The first response, the first possible response today, and the first response then was, you're nuts. You're crazy. Each of the Gospels record the same thing, that women were last at the cross and first at the tomb. And each of the Gospels show the different responses of the women in a variety of different ways. And John here focuses on Mary Magdalene. And we look over to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, Luke goes even further to explain the disciples' response when they hear the news from the ladies. Luke 24, 10 and 11 say, The women told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, as nonsense. Come on. No way. They did not believe them. Well, why didn't they believe them? For the same reason we wouldn't believe them. Because last time we checked, last time you went to a funeral home, dead people weren't coming out of it. Also, you wouldn't believe them because in that world, a woman had absolutely no testimony in Roman culture or in Jewish culture. They had no vote. They had no credibility in any court of law. And so as a result, the disciples respond, this seems like an idle tale. And we're not believing these ladies, well, with the story that they are making up. You, you see, women in that culture simply had no credibility. It strikes me that if you were to make up a great resurrection fib, you wouldn't pick people who had no credibility in that culture to back up the resurrection fib. Not that I'm an expert in fibbing, but come on. Right? It makes sense, doesn't it? You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't pick someone who had no credibility in that culture. You would pick those who had credibility in that culture. If they were making this up, this would be a fatal mistake. You see, the only reason to believe that the women were the first ones at the tomb to see the resurrected Christ was because they were. And this was a difficult thing that the gospel writers had to come to grips with. And while it may have been embarrassing for them, it actually went a ways, and it still goes a ways, to backing up the credibility of these accounts, the truthfulness of these accounts, because you wouldn't make this stuff up. A first possible response is, you're crazy. A second possible response that we see also 
in the narrative, and we hear from many people today is, uh, I doubt it. Come on. You don't really believe that kind of stuff, do you? And so also the disciples. I mean, they all struggled with doubt. They had heard from Jesus many times that he would die and that he would rise physically. But on the night of the crucifixion, they were nowhere to be found. Only John and the women were near Jesus at the cross. And they were all huddled away in fear and doubting, saying, what do we do next? We, we gave up our businesses to follow him. And now they're crestfallen. And they say, what do we do next? We have, we have no idea what we should do. And they're not believing at this moment until in the very next scene, you'll remember that Jesus appears to them and Jesus says, peace be with you. And he comes to the disciples and I imagine him coming one by one to each of them and saying to them, peace be with you, here I am. And as the Father sent me, so I am sending you to go out and spread my love wherever you might go. And these disciples witnessed the resurrection and at that moment, they believed, and they gave their lives for the resurrection, and they went out, and they did just what he said to go out and spread his love wherever they would go. And all of them believed, except for one. You remember that one still didn't believe. He wasn't there, that next resurrection appearance. And so the next scene that John records for us is in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, I don't care how many of you say that you have seen the resurrected Christ. I don't care how many women have given those reports. I don't care how many reports there have been since this time. I'm not believing it until I put my hands where those nail marks were, till I put my hand in his side where the spear went through his side up to his heart, I won't believe it until I see the empirical evidence. And so, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. This is the common refrain from Jesus, peace be with you. You know that anytime Jesus comes into someone's heart, anytime someone, Jesus comes into someone's life, this is what he says, peace be with you. You now have peace with God. Peace be with you, he says to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. I love this scene in which in a moment skepticism is turned into belief for this man that we call a doubter. I pray for those of you who experience a lot of doubt or have kind of a latent skepticism about you that you can take refuge from the story of Thomas. You know, sometimes doubts can be used to actually strengthen our faith. Sometimes the process of questioning, asking good questions and finding good answers can be used to refine our faith. It certainly was for me. But some people, unfortunately, get hardened in their doubt. They get hardened in their questions, hardened in their skepticism, and they simply refuse to process the possibility that Christ has actually risen from the grave. And if you're someone today that, that you would describe yourself as relatively skeptical or a doubter, that's okay. Nothing wrong with asking questions. Just don't be hardened in your doubt. Maintain an open mind. 
Jesus invites us to ask, to seek, to examine the evidence. And this is precisely what Thomas did. He asked for more evidence, and then Jesus gently comes to him, not reprimanding him, not rebuking him, but gently coming to him and saying, look, see, I was killed, but now I am right in front of you. And then Thomas came to believe, and like all the others, he proceeded to give his life for this message. As he went off to India, and he became the first martyr there, and uh, the church was born through the blood of the martyrs all over the Mediterranean world and into India. And I don't know about you, I simply believe those witnesses who gain no benefit from their stories. And this was true for everyone of the disciples. I remember the quip from Mark Twain. He said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That just isn't the case with Christianity, my friends. That is simply not the case when it comes to Christianity. Faith is not believing what you know ain't so. When it comes to Christianity, faith is based on an actual historical event in time and in space. There are no bones of Jesus beneath the dirt in Jerusalem. Can I get an amen? He actually has risen from the grave. And because he has risen from the grave, our faith is well placed in him. So also, just some time later, he appeared to the Apostle Paul, who previously hated Christians. He was the greatest of skeptics, and yet he encountered the resurrected Christ, and after he encountered the resurrected Christ, he went from skeptic to believer, and as he was reflecting on it all, back in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. In other words, we get no comfort from a lie. I get no comfort from believing a myth that's just a trick for billions of people. But we ain't believing a myth. We're not believing a lie. We're believing the truth that the tomb remains empty and therefore we have full confidence to embrace Christ in all of his glory and to live out of freedom that comes from him. He will slowly transform our lives as we trust in him. I don't know about you, I'm feeling pretty victorious this Sunday morning. How about you? Anyone else? I am feeling victorious on Easter Sunday morning for at least two reasons. The first one is this. There are no bones of Jesus underneath that dirt in Jerusalem. And any man who lived the kind of perfect, beautiful life that Jesus lived and said in advance that he would die in this kind of way and that he would rise far from the grave on the third day and then he actually pulled it all off, I'm going with that guy. I'm not sure what your response will be to him. I'm not sure what your response will be to me, but I'm going with the guy who rose from the grave. Not only so, I'm hopeful today. I'm feeling victorious today because it's true and because this is truth which inspires for us hope. This is truth which inspires hope for those who trust in Christ. Jesus said on another occasion over in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You get that? Whoever lives... Whoever believes in me will never die. 
The grave won't hold that person. And so the operative question for all of us today is, do you believe this? The response there is simply that we would say, yes, based on the evidence, I believe you, Lord Jesus, I trust myself to you, and therefore hope is very much alive. My, uh, my mother and I are kind of word nerds. And uh, a number of years ago, my mother sent me this list of the 100 most beautiful words in the English language. We like looking at these kinds of things. You can pray for us. And uh, they, were, they were ranked the 100 most beautiful, most lovely words in the English language because of the way they kind of just rolled off the tongue. We like these kinds of things, yeah. And, uh, and we agreed as we looked at that list that as beautiful as all those words were, there was one word that was missing. Hope. We can't live without hope, can we? Can any of us live without hope? Many of you don't know me. I've just been around here the past seven months. I'm fairly new to Kearney. But I want to tell you just a little bit of my story and how I experienced hope through this story. I was a relatively good kid. At least I thought so. By most standards, I was relatively good. I had a lot of awards and honors and got pretty good grades. And uh, most people would have looked at me as a young person and say, yeah, he, he's going to be just fine. But around the age of 17, I started to ask a whole lot of questions, and I started to struggle with big questions related to where are we from, what are our origins, where are we going when we die, what is morality, what is meaning, and how do I deal with evil experiences that I personally have experienced, those kinds of questions. As I processed through those kinds of questions, I looked at a couple different religions of the world, started to study them a bit, and in the midst of that, someone gave me a book that challenged my assumptions about Jesus as well challenged my assumptions about whether this was just yet another myth. And in that book, I, I came to realize that there are actually great historical reasons that Jesus literally rose from the grave physically in time and in space. And if he did so, I couldn't simply shoo him off as yet another prophet. I couldn't simply shoo him off as yet another good teacher. I had to actually deal with him. And so I started to believe, at least intellectually, that God rose Jesus from the dead. Fast forward a couple years, that really didn't change my life at all, but as I began to study a little bit more and, and learn a bit more about Christ, and as I began to learn a bit more about myself, I recognized that while I might look good on the outside, there was a mess going on in here. And truth be told, externally I was pretty nice to people, but internally I was pretty ugly to people. And externally... I may not have been real arrogant or boastful, but internally, I was inflated like a balloon. And I was just kind of dogged by the randomness of life and the sense that you live and you die and there's suffering experiences and they're all kind of meaningless. And there's evil and that it will never be redeemed and that's the way it is. And in the midst of that, I was at the top bunk of my dorm room, just about 40 miles east of here, off I-80 at Hastings College, and I came face to face with my own failures. Many others, I'll spare you the gory details. I came face to face with my own failures, and I said, what do I do with this? And an older gentleman came by my side, and he taught me about the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, the hope that is found in Christ. 
And I came to learn that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he actually died for me. That his sacrifice, his crucifixion, paid the penalty for my sins and covered my shame. And then he rose from the grave, validating my trust in him. And as I trusted in him, then I could find forgiveness and hope forevermore. And when I started to believe in that, not just here, not just intellectually, but I started to believe in that right here, all I can tell you is bit by bit, he started to change my life. I know some of you had the same exact experience that as you bumped into Christ, slowly, bit by bit, he started to change your life and give you a new kind of hope. And I can't say that I was totally changed immediately once I believed in here, but I can say that bit by bit there was a change in which uh, that critical spirit toward others began to develop into a compassionate spirit toward others. And that judgmentalism and that pride started to change into a bit of humility. Not that I would stand here before you today and say, now I'm a humble man. Anyone who says that certainly is not humble. But I've been changed. And bit by bit, I've experienced this reality that his resurrection is a forerunner of our resurrection. That he comes into us, and as we abide in his love, he begins to change us. And his victory is a forerunner of our future victory. His hope is a forerunner of our hope. And as Jesus was the first of a sort to be a butterfly that kind of emerged from the cocoon, so also one day we will emerge from our cocoons. That suffering will not have the final word for us, just as it did not have the final word for him. Hope, my friends, is alive and well as we trust in Christ today. Do you know the name Rick Warren? Raise your hand if you know Rick Warren's name. Rick Warren is a pastor out in California, and he wrote a book seven or eight years ago titled The Purpose Driven Life that sold a few copies, give or take 30 million. And he's been very successful. He's had a wonderful pastoral career. But a few years ago, he experienced the worst kind of pain that someone can experience. When Rick and his dear wife Kay lost their 27-year-old son Matthew to a suicide, and Matthew had struggled for many years with mental illness and depression. And this was the greatest tragedy that they could have experienced, probably that any of us could experience. And about a year after the tragedy, Rick Warren began to open up about that and reflect on it. And he said this, I've often been asked, how have you made it? How have you kept going in your pain? And I've often times replied, the answer is Easter. You see, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and mystery. But Easter, that Sunday morning, was the day of hope and joy and victory. Listen as he goes on. Here's the fact of life. You will face these three days over and over again in your lifetime. Can I get an amen? We will face these three days over and over again. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do with my days of pain? Number two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And number three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? And Warren said, the answer is Easter. The answer is always Easter. 
Because we're going to have those days of extraordinary pain on Friday. And we're going to have those days of extraordinary doubt and confusion on Saturday. But because Christ lives, so also we shall really live. So also we shall conquer the grave. So also hope remains for us. We stand before a God who is not small. He has conquered the grave for Christ and he will conquer the grave for you. Easter Sunday is a reality. We get to live in its truth today. I don't know where you are in terms of your personal response to this message. But I just want to encourage you, if you've been around Christ for some time, but you've kind of shooed him off, or maybe you embraced him at some point when you were a young person, and you've stayed away from him for some time, and, and, and you might just ask, would he have me again? This is the God of the second chances. He is the God of the second chance. Or perhaps you're in a place that you would say, I've never really thought that I need to respond to the resurrection of Christ. And please hear me that this offer is for you as well. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And as we respond in faith to him, there is always hope for us in life and there is always hope for us in death. This story is far more than wishful thinking. It is far more than a myth which would inspire hope. This story is truth that changes lives, that grants us hope, no matter what we are facing today. And so God invites us to respond afresh to him this morning. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, how we thank you that you rose Jesus Christ from the grave. And as the scriptures promise, because he lives, so also we shall really live. I, for one, God, get no comfort in believing a myth. And so I thank you, Lord, that this is far more than that. This is truth with a capital T. You actually rose from the grave, Lord Jesus. And for such a reason, our faith is validated. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we gain from this. I pray for any friends in here who are contemplating how they might respond to Christ. I, I pray, God, that you would let us all know again this morning that you are the resurrection and the life, that you love us, and you invite us to your Son, Jesus Christ. In him is peace and love and hope forevermore. And so we give you thanks, and we say together, amen.